Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, I hope everybody had a good Veterans Day this week. Um, I, I, I think my, uh, my eight-year-old explained to me that they did not have school this past Thursday because we were celebrating veterinarians. <laughs> he said it was such a straight face that I, <laughs> he's literally in my rearview mirror and I see him and he's just like, yeah, veterinarians. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, what's a veterinarian, buddy? And he's like, you don't know what a veterinarian is? You know? And I'm like, yeah, yeah what is it? And he, to- he tells me that they are, uh, you know, military people that protected our country from bad guys. So I'm like, all right, he's got the heart of it, right? Like, he's, he's at least we're on track. So, uh, again, thank you to all the veterans um, <laughs> who uh, have served and currently do serve in the military. Uh, one, of, one of the unique aspects of our church is that it is, we have an extremely high percentage of people in the military. Um, and, and at least, you know, I think one of the things also is that uh, whether you have served in the military or not, one of the unique aspects about this city, and I would say our church um, that I actually do love, is that we have directly been impacted by, even if you do not serve currently or yourself have ever served, you have been and are directly impacted by those that do or have. Um, and so we have, uh, or we tend to have, a deeper appreciation for military service as a result. I know I do. So, um, I just want to say that it is an honor to share Christ, this life in Christ with you. And so, um, this morning, we are going to continue in our series called Church People. So, uh, and we're going to walk through the, we have been walking through the last few chapters of the book of Hebrews. And so, often, though, as we've said before in the series, when people use the term church people, it comes with a negative and sometimes even hostile attitude. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but I have. Um, even church people tend to speak with kind of like a, a negative attitude about other church people. But it's important to understand what church actually is and who church people actually are. And so that's what we're going to do in this series. That's what we've been doing. We're, this, what, this is all kind of designed around trying to understand who church people actually are because we are them. And if you are not, I hope that you will be by the end of this uh, sermon. So if you have been hurt, though, by church people, uh, many people have. Right? I'm not trying to minimize that, uh, but I do want to magnify the power of forgiveness because this is the unique characteristic that church people themselves have. We have been forgiven much, and therefore we are called to forgive much, and in doing so, we demonstrate the very grace that we're called to proclaim. Amen? This is who we are as church people. So, in this series, I hope to reclaim the why behind the what for gathering together and loving one another as God's beloved, spirit-filled, redeemed, and gospel-commissioned covenant community. This is who we are. We're not perfect people, but we are perfectly loved people, and we are perfectly positioned people to proclaim and demonstrate the grace of Christ to each other and to a world that's in desperate need of it. We are are not cancel culture. Amen? So, 
The purpose of this series, again, is to see church people through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Not just through the eyes of the world, not how the world sees church people or the way culture sees church people, but we want to look at church people through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Because when we see church people through his eyes, it'll change our perspective entirely. And that's actually who church people are. In fact, The way Jesus sees things is the way things actually are. So the goal here isn't to present church people through rose-colored glasses. Like the idea here is that when we see church people as he does, we see them for who they are. And you'll even see yourself for who you are. And you get all of that blind, distracted, uh, essentially lies out of your mind and allow him to renew your mind and transform you entirely. And so you may realize that in this process that that negative view of God's people actually is a symptom of your negative view of God himself. You see, whether you realize it or not, you have a creator. That's everybody, right? You are not the creator. You are the created, and your very existence and ultimate reality is defined by your relationship with the creator. Nobody can get away from that. Who you truly are is defined entirely by how you relate to the author and creator of the universe. It's going to affect everything. How you relate to him will determine how you relate to everybody and everything else in creation. So how you relate to others is often a direct, or is always, honestly, a direct reflection of your relationship with God. See, this is one of the reasons why hurt people hurt people. This is also why healed people heal people. And this is also why forgiven people forgive people. So it's the kind of relationship that we have with God, literally how we relate to him and subsequently one another, that sets church people apart from the rest of the world. So this morning, we come to Hebrews 12, verse 18 through 29, and we're presented with two very different ways that people relate to God. That's what we're going to see here. Now, remember that this passage flows directly out of chapters 10 and 11, which encourage us over and over and over again to draw near to God and to draw near to each other. Right? Hebrews 10, verse 24 through 25, which is where we kind of kick this series off. Um, it said this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that day is judgment day is what it's referring to. And so then chapter 11 sort of just unloads on us with story after story of men and women who were faithfully or who faithfully did exactly that. They weren't perfect people, but they leveraged their lives by faith for the kingdom and the glory of God. And then chapter 12 launched directly out of that line of thought and gave us this practical metaphor of a race that describes the calling on every true Christian's life. And it said in uh, Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So now, the next few paragraphs are going to describe the lifestyle, or I'm sorry, the the next few paragraphs did describe the lifestyle of a true Christian. 
as a life of, like what you see is a life of, of intentionality, intentionally drawing near to God, to even run near to God and to one another. And it requires focus and even disciplines. That's what we talked about last week. Um, so it, like the picture there is like runners in a race, they're encouraging others each other onward towards Jesus, and they're surrounded by this heritage of other faithful believers who have gone on to heaven and are cheering each other like onward, even in difficult circumstances. It's this extremely good journey towards and with Jesus. That's what we, we've been looking at. It's this intentional pursuit of the one who's calling us forward in joy. But it's intentional, right? So we said we rivet our eyes on Jesus. We consider the heritage of courage and testimony that surrounds us, and we run the race that he set before us with discipline even in the difficulty because of the joy that's set before us, which is Jesus himself. So it's not this like begrudging, begrudging, there's, it's like begrudging and trudging. Begrudging, there you go, veterinarian. Um, so, like, it's not a begrudging thing that we trudge through, right? This is for the joy that's set before us. We're like, get anything and everything out of my way if it stands between me and freedom, which is Jesus Christ. You're not free if you're not running to him. Anything that you would run to other than him is a symptom of slavery, period. That you're not, like, free to go over here. You are, but if you do, you're not free. That's a symptom of slavery, amen? Because we're created for him. And so we've talked about like why it's such an intentional race in a fallen world. And so it's a race of grace though, not perfection. We don't look to discipline to save us. We don't look even to each other to save us. We look to Jesus and we run the race in the grace he's provided as we encourage one another and point to the Savior King. But we are called to run forward. We are called to draw near to him and not shrink back. And so all of that is the context and the line of thought that leads us where we are here this morning in Hebrews 12 in the last two paragraphs of the chapter. And so we're presented here with two very different ways that people relate to God. And we're given two famous mountains from the Bible to illustrate the two different ways that we relate to God. And remember, the way that you relate to God will define your ultimate reality. It'll characterize every aspect of your life and eternity. So we're presented with two mountains. The first is Mount Sinai. Say Mount Sinai. This is where the holy presence of God shook the earth and terrified the people in the Old Testament. They all shrank back from the foot of this mountain and they were petrified. But then the other is Mount Zion. Say Zion. Zion. It's a, just a fun word to say. Zion. So, um, so this is Mount Zion. This is where God provided a way to draw near to his holy presence. This is where his people drew near to him and each other in this joyful, intimate celebration. That was what Zion represented in the Bible. This morning, we're going to look at these two mountains, and I want to show you how everyone's life, whether they claim to be a Christian or not, is characterized by one of these two mountains. You're either shrinking back from God at the foot of the mountain of terror, or you're drawing near to God 
on top of the mountain of joy and celebration. That's what we're going to talk about. So the one thing that I want you to get this morning is actually a question. Is your life characterized by shrinking back from the holy presence of God or drawing near? Is it the insecure terror of Mount Sinai or the unshakable joy of Mount Zion? Is your life characterized by shrinking back from holiness or drawing near? Is it the insecure terror of Mount Sinai or the unshakable joy, the confidence of drawing near represented by Mount Zion? So turn with me to Hebrews 12, verse 18 through 29. And we're going to walk through this together and we'll take a look at these two mountains And then we're going to draw near to God together in unshakable joy like we're on Zion. All right? Because we are. Here we go. Hebrews 12, verse 18 through 21. You guys with me? All right. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now remember, this letter was written to a first century church who was predominantly Jewish and extremely familiar with the Old Testament, okay? And this is an Old Testament story. And so he's assuming that they know about the story of Moses and the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's what he's referencing right here, okay? But you may not be familiar with this story. Maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you've come here and you've come to know Jesus and you're like, I don't really remember that story. That's okay, Now I'm going to share it with you, right? So I'm going to fill you in and or remind you of what's going on. So let's back up, all right? And when I say back up, like we're going back way up, okay? To a man whom God befriends named Abraham. God calls Abraham, this man, to a new land, and he tells him that he's going to be, uh, become a blessing. God's going to bless him to be a blessing to the entire world. He's going to bless him and his offspring. He's going to give him a massive family, and they're going to be a blessing to the entire world. Okay? So Abraham then has a son named Isaac, who then has a son named Jacob, who has a bunch of kids. And Abraham's family starts to grow and grow in the land um, in the land that God promised to them. This is the story or in the book of Genesis, okay? And then a famine hits the area. There's no more food. And through some pretty wild circumstances and, and pretty bad decisions that were made by God's chosen family, including selling their brother Joseph into slavery, they all end up in Egypt. And this is where God provides a way of escape from the famine that was in the land. And he saved his people. And it's this powerful story of God's mercy and how even he sovereignly turns what was meant for evil into something ultimately very good for his people. Because this is what he does for his people. 
But then God's people, known as, at this point, the Hebrews, they get comfortable in Egypt. They forget about God's promise and his call to return to the promised land. And they got comfortable in a land that was not their own. 400 years then pass, and their comfort has turned into slavery. That'll preach all on its own, right? Because that's what happens when you lose sight of God's purpose and calling. You become enslaved by your own comfort. But God was merciful. He was merciful to his people and he was faithful to his promise even in spite of his people. So he sends this man named Moses, and through a number of miraculous events, God delivers his people from slavery, and he leads them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and into the wilderness, and back to the promised land, right? This is the story of Exodus. This is, this is what we see in the Old Testament, and, and while they're then on this journey, God begins to teach these former slaves about who he is, and subsequently, who he's calling them to be. He's renewing their minds, Right? They're pretty confused about a whole lot, right? And they're really stuck in their old ways. Even things like don't steal, don't steal or, or don't commit adultery or, mor- or murder, like these are not things that come naturally to an enslaved mindset. They're even prone to worshiping other gods because they don't really know or even trust the Lord yet. Even though they've seen these amazing things, that doesn't do it. So the Exodus story is the story of God liberating his people, not only from slavery in Egypt, but from themselves, from their own enslaved, sinful mindset. Right? Not a lot has changed in that regard. He's revealing his character to them, and he's renewing their minds about who he is and what that means for them as his people. It's almost as though who they are is about who he is, and then their identity is in subsequential order to who they understand him to be. So he begins to give them these commandments and these laws to set them apart from the world that was around them. But before he does all of that, just before he does all that, he brings them to the foot of this mountain called Mount Sinai. So they're camping around this mountain, and here is the account from Exodus 19, verse 16 through 19. I'm going to read it for you. Exodus 19, verse 16. says this, On the morning of the third day, so they're camped around Mount Sinai, and on the morning of the third day that they're camped there, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Exodus 20 verse 18 through 21 it further describes what we're seeing here and it says this now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses you speak to us and we'll listen but do not let God speak to us lest we die 
Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Pretty intense. So this wasn't what I would call like a seeker-friendly event. Right? Like there's no call to come just as you are with soft light music. Right? It's not like, you know, ah, it's all good. Come, you know, look, look. You don't have to get yourself together. Just come as you. That's not at all what we're seeing here. In fact, it tells them to get yourself together and, you know what, not enough. Stay back because I'm going to kill you. That's what we're seeing here. The holy presence of God was terrifying to a sinful people. And you know what? It still is. And Hebrews 12 gives us these seven characteristics of what that encounter at Sinai was like. And we're told this. We're told that it was, one, a tangible or touchable mountain. That's important. Two, there was a blazing fire. Three, darkness. Four, gloom. Five, a tempest. Six, the trumpet, or sorry, the sound of a trumpet. And then seven, a voice that's so petrifying, they beg him to stop speaking. This is what the holy presence of God is like to a sinful people. Not just back then. This is what the holy presence of God is like to a sinful people today. Remember, this is the same unchanging God. It's not a different God. It's not the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It's not the same one. We need to understand this. Hebrews is drawing upon these two mountains, for a reason. Same God. But there is something different. You see, this God, there's this unapproachable majesty about him being described here. His presence is clearly there, and his voice is clearly speaking, and yet somehow he's still hidden. He's still distant, in a way. And instead of drawing near to him, they want him to stop speaking. His voice is too much, so they shrink back and even do their best to suppress his words. They want to suppress the truth, not because God was evil, but because they are. So they shrink back because of his holiness. They can't handle it. Now today, when people hear that word holy, they tend to think about moral behavior, right? That's what we think of. We think holiness, moral behavior. Like we think about religious people or like church people, right? There's church people who think they're all holy, you know? Holier than thou, all that stuff. That's the kind of language you hear. And again, look, that's totally behavior-oriented. And that's why people have no concept of the true gospel of grace and, and, and why people that don't have that concept of the gospel of grace are constantly hurling that accusation at church people of hypocrisy. Because they think the whole point is behavior. If you don't understand grace, you think it's all about how you behave. That's what you think holiness means. And, and in some ways, yes, that's part of it. But it's only part. In fact, the word holy in Hebrew is the word kadosh. Say kadosh. I love it because it sounds like kadosh. Um, and it's, it's a word that goes way beyond outward behavior. It includes outward behavior, but it's way more, way more. So for God to be kadosh, 
It means that he's the source of everything. It means that he is the one-of-a-kind, unique, totally other, set-apart author of the universe. That he is the very essence of purity and the essence of power and the essence of beauty and the essence of goodness. He is holy. He is right. He is righteous. He is justice. He is creator. It's who he is. He is kadosh. He's God. He's holy. So when his holy presence is manifest before sinful people on Mount Sinai, they shrink back even from the foot of the mountain. They have to. So there's this mountain of separation between them and God, and yet still they dare not even approach the mountain. If they did, they would die. So Hebrews 12 is saying, remember Mount Sinai? You remember that story? Right? The author of Hebrews is trying to get us to remember this. Get it in your head, right? Remember that? And he says, yeah, that's not your story. That's not your story. And if it is this morning, it doesn't have to be. We've been called to draw near to his holy presence, not shrink back. Because God himself has made a way. You see, in a sense, he wanted them to approach. That's what, when you go back and you look at the, the, the Exodus story there, he actually wants them to draw near. The only one that will is Moses. The only one who has an understanding of the depth of his character is Moses. Right? Everybody else shrinks back. So in a sense, he wants them to draw near. But a sinful people can't. They just can't. But we've been called to draw near, and he has made a way to draw near. He's made a way for us to draw near to his kadosh and be a people of his holiness. A holy people. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 22. He says this. But, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is your story. You're not at the foot of Sinai. You're on top of Zion. That's what he's saying. So what's Mount Zion all about? Zion is the mountain in which the temple of God was built. That's what, where, it's where the holy presence of God dwelled in the Old Testament. It's where heaven and earth met. It's where the invitation to draw near to God was extended to everyone who would come under the blood of the Lamb. There was still no way to access that presence and that holiness without the blood of the Lamb. That's very important. Zion was the mountain. Zion was the point. Zion was the place in the Old Testament, and it all where man and humanity and women could access the presence of God in some way by the blood of the Lamb. It all pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God the Holy One in the flesh who takes away the sins of the world and gives access to the Holy Kadosh presence of God. 
Everything about Zion was an invitation to draw near to the holy presence of God by pointing to the blood of Christ. This is why Jesus gets so upset when there were obstacles placed in his temple on Mount Zion from people that wanted to access. That's when he flips the tables over and starts going bananas, right? And he wasn't bananas. He was completely in control. It was a righteous anger. Because it's all about the presence of God being accessed through the blood of Christ. Because this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die. And he conquered death in the grave. And he paved the way to eternal life that starts now with God the Father as his children. That starts now. Not one day when we die. It starts now by the indwelling of his spirit that comes closer to you than your own skin. Emmanuel with us and even within us through his spirit. This is the gospel. This is our invitation. Invitation. This is your story and our invitation. Like this is our experience, right? We are the people of Zion, not Sinai. We draw near to holiness because of Jesus. We don't shrink back from it. Like whether it's because of fear or for comfort or whatever it is or both. Oftentimes we run to comfort because it's a fearful thing that we think we can't handle because we don't have faith in the blood of Christ. That's not Christianity. We've been called to draw near to the kadosh of the one who has drawn near to us. The one who's closer to us than a brother. This is Jesus. While verse 18 and 19 gave us seven descriptions of what causes us to shrink back, in verse 22 and 23 we get seven descriptions of the new covenant. The thing that causes us is a characteristic of drawing near to him. And why? This is our story. This is Zion. It's the access that we have to the holy presence of God in Christ. And again, this isn't about what we will come to one day. Like, look at this. It doesn't say one day when you die and go to heaven, this is what you'll come to. This just says, it says, we have already come to Zion. This is our holy privilege as we gather together as sons and daughters of the Most High King to approach his throne without fear, with full confidence, as beloved, justified children. Spirit-filled, grace-bought believers of the new covenant. This is what Christianity is all about. This is what church people are all about. This is what risen church is all about Drawing near to the God who draws near to us with unshakable confidence and joy. And that's only available in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's why we sing things like, it's, it's why we sing to the God who heals. It's why we sing to the God who saves. It's why we sing to the God who always makes a way. Right? We just sing this. Because he hung up on that cross, then he rose up from that grave, and my God, still rolling stones away. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today, and we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. Or maybe you're still in Zion and shrinking back. We were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. Now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by his grace. Let the house of the Lord sing.
praise. That's a song of Zion. That's a celebration of the truth. It's not a celebration of what we feel. It's a celebration celebration of our ultimate reality, no matter what the circumstances might seem like. That's what Zion's all about. So again, we get seven characteristics of what we've come to already. And these characteristics are our current circumstance. So let's dive into those seven characteristics. We have time, doesn't matter. Let's go. So first one. We have come to the city of the living God and heavenly Jerusalem. So it's clear. Catch this. This is not referring to a physical mountain. It's not talking about the physical mountain Zion. That is still there today, but it's got nothing to do with what it's talking about right now. Again, this isn't a place that can be touched, right? We just saw that. This is a reference to the heavenly city that we've been grafted into as citizens of the kingdom of heaven by the blood of Christ, right? It's the heavenly Jerusalem, which is not going to manifest fully and physically until Christ returns. It's not a reference to a physical place. It's talking about our identity as citizens of heaven. We talked about this in our series in Revelation, uh, where the new Jerusalem represents the manifestation of the new heaven and the new earth and the kingdom of God as heaven comes to earth like the Holy of Holies on the temple at Mount Zion. That's everywhere. Everywhere. And we've been given full, unmitigated access to him. That begins even now, spiritually, because we're in the overlap of the ages. Already, but not yet totally. You see, this is what Jesus will usher in physically at his return. But again, this is who we are and what we get to enjoy spiritually even now. Because we are risen in Christ and seated with him in heavenly places even now. One day, it'll be physical, fully. But don't discount what you've got access to now. It's the city of the living God, the God who is not dead but is surely alive and active and present among us, close to us, even dwelling within us. We don't worship an idea. We don't worship a philosophy or a tradition. We worship a person. And we worship him in spirit and in truth, and we do it together. This is our ultimate reality, and it's our ultimate identity. Look, look, when we gather together, when we draw near, there's a lot more happening than what your five senses will tell you. you. I want you to get this. I want you to snap out of the lies. This thing is supernatural. There's more going on. In fact, this is screaming. This is the screaming, just shout of God to say, wake up and lean in and draw near. This is not an escape to an alternate reality. This is the unveiling of ultimate reality and an unshakable kingdom. Look at the second characteristic here. We have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. (laughs) What? Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear a phrase like festal gathering, it doesn't really excite me. Okay? Like, seriously. Like, when I hear festal gathering, I think of something like in Colonial Williamsburg, right? right? Like, I, like, let's be honest. The truth is, you know, the older I get, the more I'm like, man, you know, I could go for a solid festal gathering. You know? 
not too crazy, just kind of stroll around, pushing a stroller, drinking like something pumpkin spiced or something, you know, be, be festal with all the festal gatherings around, you know, something that sounds pretty good. But the idea of festal gathering here is something totally different. There is no, meh, I could go for heaven. That's not what it is. This is it. There's no meh to it, right? This is an ancient way of talking about a huge celebration. It's like a massive party. Like, I don't mean like a, a little come out and hang out and socialize kind of party. I'm talking about a full-on revelry, excitement. I heard someone from up north call it a, a, a jammer or a banger or something like that. I don't know. Any, I, anyway, but, but the point, like, what we see here is that, that this is what drawing near to God is like. This is what we've come to. Like God often portrays himself to his people in the midst of a, like this heavenly bash. He's often surrounded in scripture by thousands of angels who are like blazing fire. Like the redeemed of all creation are surrounding and they're like they're this in this full throttle elation overdrive. Have you ever been in that place where you're just like so it's one of the reasons why I think people like you know, like you get like Robin Williams where he's just like oh, bam, you know. And then he's just, it's like, he's almost manic because you can't hold on to that, right? This is the bam for eternity because you're operating, your flesh doesn't draw you back down. It's just an engagement in the holiness and the wonder and the awe and the goodness of God forever and ever and ever and ever. And yet there's a deep lasting rest and peace in it as well. That's the festal gathering that it's talking about here. It's trying to get your head around this. Listen to how Revelation 5, verse 11 through 12 describes it. It says this, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Like, they're not just like, eh, I could go for some worship. You know, they're, they're not like, eh, you know, I not, not like the harp was a little out of tune. I don't, not really my preference or style. of No, they are just, it's, it's, they're enthralled with the goodness of God. And they're leaning in and they're just blown away. That's a worship session, man. And that's, look, hear me. This isn't, a, that's not a description. What we see in Revelation 5 is not about what will be. That's what's happening right now. Now, that's the lifting of the veil of our current circumstance right now. And we've all been invited to draw near to that. Like if you could lift the veil, you'd see that this is what we enter into every time we gather together and praise him together. Like we're joining innumerable angels around the throne of God and the angels are worshiping him in spirit and truth and the thing that causes the greatest awe is what he's done for you and me in their minds and hearts. Like that's the angels look at that and they go, they're not going, man, look what God's done for me. They're going, look what God's done for them. It's amazing. Like 1 Peter 1.12 actually talks about how they're fascinated by the gospel that we've been delivered and how they long to look into it for eternity. Like, this is what's surrounding us. 
This is, this is the, the world often clouds this ultimate reality of our grace-bought circumstance. But these angels who are sent to serve us and point us as well to him, they're seeing God face to face. And they see just how amazing this grace actually is. So I want to encourage you to bent, but do whatever it takes to snap out of it and get your head in his holiness and draw near. Like how much more should we be crying out holy, 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 and worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain if the angels are doing it? How much more should we be doing it? Right? Like that's not a guilt trip to make you shrink back. That's an invitation to behold his glory and draw near to God and each other and to draw near to the party. Amen? Because church people love to party. It should have been a point, but it's not. It's just, it is. All right. So we want to be reflective. That's true, right? Yes, we want to be reflective. We're not just this like, every time we come together, it's just like, yay, we're excited. Not sure what we're excited about, but stir yourselves up to be excited for no apparent reason. That's not what we're doing here. It's not an empty, frivolous, flippant thing. That's going to crash on you. That'll crash and burn. Yes, we're reflective. Yes, we're reverent. Yes, take it all in for the sake of renewal and transformation. But don't forget to celebrate because it's not about you. Right? Don't get so caught up in yourself that you forget to celebrate your Savior. Like God's called us to ruminate on him, not brood in intellectualism. Like I love it. You know, look, I, hey. I can geek out with the best of them, right? But all of that is pointing us to rejoice in him. All of that is calling us not to the foot of a doom and gloom mountain. We've come to the top of Zion to an eternal, unshakable celebration. Three. The third thing is we've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So this term firstborn, it's got this legal connotation to it, right? It refers to the firstborn son of every family having preeminence over the inheritance. That's what it's talking about. It's the birthright that the firstborn has in this society. Revelation 1.4 also tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead and his inheritance was the kingdom of God which is the kingdom that we've been talking about, right? Like the new heavens and the new earth that's going to last for eternity. That's why his throne is an eternal throne, because he is the king and the kingdom is an eternal kingdom, right? And so here, though, what we see is that the term used for firstborn isn't singular, it's plural. And what that means is it's not talking about coming to the assembly of Jesus. Yes, we're assembling with Jesus and before Jesus, but this is using the same term to describe the preeminent birthrights of Christ as a characteristic of all the citizens of heaven. You are the firstborn. That's what it's talking about. This is the kingdom and assembly that we gather with spiritually and all those who gather around the throne and await this coming heavenly inheritance are praising God for it. And it's coming, and in fact, it's yours even now. This is part of what it means to reign with Christ. You're not a slave. You're a son or a daughter. You're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're gathering together with all the firstborn citizens of heaven in a covenant family. The the family of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
You see all this stuff? It's coming together. It should sound familiar. This is who we are. We are church people. Right? Fourth, we've come to God, the judge of all. So remember that the one who has set us free is himself the judge. Right? Like that's why he isn't just our savior. He's also our king. He's our Lord. He's the Lord of all. And if he's not, then he's not Lord at all. Right? Like if he's not Lord of all in your life, then he's not Lord at all in your life. This is what it's talking about. But for those who have trusted in Jesus, knowing that he is the judge, it's extremely comforting. Like it's the reminder of our status as forgiven. And yet it's also the reminder that he is just and good and wicked, wickedness will not go unpunished. Those two things are not contradictions. Because, in, in fact, it's cause for even more grateful praise because he has taken the punishment your wickedness and my wickedness demands. To the extent that it would be unjust for him to hold those sins against us. He's the judge. The judge is the one who took it on your behalf. <laughs> That's awesome. That's grace. And yes, it's amazing grace. But the question is, will you draw near or will you shrink back? Five, we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is powerful. Lean in here. I got it. Here we go. Gosh, this is so awesome. Okay. We draw near to God, right, and one another. And here is another example of the one another's that we're drawing near to God with, right? So because these are the spirits of the righteous. We're drawing near. We've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They aren't righteous by their own merit, but they've been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. And yes, they are spirits because this is who we gather before his throne with even now. This one doesn't get preached a lot. These are the ones who gather before his throne in the disembodied state, who await bodily resurrection from the dead. Yes, this is a reference to what is known as the intermediate state. These are believers who have gone on before us. These are those brothers and sisters and family members and friends and all of the, the heroes of the faith that we talked about before, the faithful people, the heritage that has gone before us and stand in the presence of God and worship him. We gather together with them even now. We don't come to those spirits of the righteous made perfect when we die. In some way, we gather together with them even now when we gather together with one another. And praise God. We've been invited to draw near to God and to join this symphony of redeemed voices that echoes throughout eternal in the throne room of heaven. All who have gone before in the presence of Christ throughout history, that heritage of the faithful who cheer us on as we run that earthly race, right? The one that we're in. We gather with them and the angels in this unshakable, everlasting chorus of hallelujah. We are church people gathering together and drawing near to God and to one another, both on earth and in heaven, even now. And one day, we'll both be spiritually and physically united in this eternal chorus of praise. Pretty cool, isn't it? 
But our attention, catch this, our attention is not on each other. We cheer each other on in it, but our attention isn't on like our ancestors. Only to the extent that they encourage us to look to Jesus. It's all on Jesus. It's all on the Lord. This is what brings everlasting unity, and death itself has no authority over it even now. Right? Number six. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. I think it's, it's significant that it's right behind the fifth. Because it's saying we haven't come to those people. We've come to him. It's about Jesus. He's the one we're drawing near to. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. We're simply just all about Jesus. But shouldn't we be all about God? Yes, that's why we're all about Jesus. Right? Don't get, I don't want to make the assumption sometimes people forget that Jesus is God. Right? Don't get it twisted. Jesus is Lord. He's 100% God, and he's 100% human. He is the bridge. He is the invitation to draw near. He is the gate. He is the access. He's more near to us than we can even comprehend. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amen? Verse 7. We have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what's, what's that about? That's a little bit like, what? Is it Abel? Is that like our ability? What's... what's no, it's, it's a, a, a story about a man named Abel, right? So Abel was one of the sons of Adam and Eve in Genesis. He was murdered by his brother Cain because Cain was jealous of Abel's favor with God. See, God told them to bring a blood sacrifice to atone for their sin, and Abel was obedient in that. However, Cain brought vegetables. <laughs> like, Abel brought the fatted lamb, Right? Cain brought the fatted broccoli. No blood, because it's the blood that matters. Right? It's the first case of false religion. Almost, not quite, everything but what matters. Okay? It's not about being a morally good person. It's about the blood of the lamb. So he brings this, and, and instead, you know, of going back and... and, and God actually gives Cain another chance because he's like, no, it's about the blood. You need the blood. Sacrifice. And Cain, though, uh, instead of going back and doing it, he ends up getting jealous over the favor that Abel has, and he murders his brother. And then Genesis 4.10 says that the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. So this is what's being referenced here. And you know what the message that was crying out from Abel's blood was? Justice. Vengeance. Judgment, condemnation, that was the word. He was sprinkled with his brother's blood. In fact, a better word for sprinkled there would have been showered with it, and it wasn't coming off. This is the stain of sin. But that's no longer our story. That's what it's saying. We've been showered in another innocent man's blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, which speaks a better word. It's the word of grace. It's the word of forgiveness. It's the word of pardon and reconciliation. It's the word of freedom and invitation to draw near and not shrink back. It's the word that's been spoken to all who've been washed in the blood of Christ. This is what Zion represents. And notice that those who come to Zion, they come to the top of Zion. 
Like, that's, that's important. We meet the Lord at the top of Zion. That's where the temple at Zion was, right? So you may remember me talking about how mountains in the Bible often represent barriers between God and humanity. Anybody remember me talking about that? So notice that the ones who come to Sinai are only able to come to the foot of Sinai, and then they shrink back. But Zion is on the top of the mountain. The obstacle has been removed. In fact, the very obstacle has become the means by which we have access. The very cross has become the way we get there. The penalty of sin was taken by Jesus, allowing us to get there. The mountain has been removed. That's what's been made available to us all, which then leads us to verse 25. This is where it gets really heavy, actually. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Wait, even for us that are on Zion? Like, isn't it all happy now? See that you who have come to Zion, do not refuse him who is speaking like they did at Sinai and suppress the voice, stop their ears. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Just because it's been made available and the invitation to draw near has been extended, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to accept that invitation to draw near. This is important. Many will refuse and many have refused him. Please Risen church, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is actually a higher accountability for us who've experienced the word and spirit of God in the new covenant. This isn't a small thing. It's not a light thing. It's not a trivial matter that we get around to when we're feeling better about ourselves. That's not what this is. Listen to me. To reject the grace of God and the sacrifice of his son is not without consequence. Do not mistake the kindness of Christ for something dismissible or trivial. In Matthew 5, when, Christ dis- when his disciples return to him and they-, they tell him of the people that rejected their message, Jesus said, there's no arrogance in him when he says this. He says, you can almost hear a broken heart, but he says that it would be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it would be for those who had rejected them. Why? Because the king had come near to them in grace and kindness and mercy. The king himself had drawn near and they shrank back. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Do not dismiss God's kindness and mercy as unimportant. The truth is that dismissing the grace of God in Christ has the highest consequence of all. It's a dreadful thing to trivialize the grace of God. And his invitation to draw near is not a small thing. We dare not take it for granted. We've been invited to draw near to the one who has drawn near to us. See that you don't refuse him. See that you don't suppress his voice. Don't shrink back from holiness. Don't stand still. Don't walk to him. Don't drift over to him. Run to him and cast off anything that would hold you back from drawing near to God and to one another. Verse 26, at the time his voice shook the earth, right? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. 
That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So the spiritual realities that we have in Christ are the unshakable realities of eternity. We're not dismissing grace here. We're leaning into it. Amen? It's our very salvation. So remember, this is not a mountain that can be touched. For us now, it's a spiritual reality, but a spiritual reality that's breaking through into the physical. It's already here and yet not yet fully, right? But there's a shakedown coming. That's what it's saying. And all that will remain is going to be that which was built upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, the Savior and King of eternity. Are you built and established upon that foundation? I pray you are. I, I, this is the Mount of Zion, right? His second coming is real and it's sure and his rule and reign is happening now spiritually. But on that day, it's going to manifest physically. And all that's not firmly founded upon his lordship is going to fall to pieces and burn. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful to receiving or for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's not a light thing, but it is an awesome thing, and it's an invitation. In other words, draw near to God and one another. Accept this invitation to Zion. So, now, some claim to be living on Zion, and they claim the blood of Christ, but functionally they're living like they're at the foot of Sinai. Like, I get why believers, I'm sorry, I get why unbelievers are afraid to come to church, right? Like, I do. It makes sense. Like, seriously, it makes sense. Honestly, when somebody, like, it's the ones who are the most fearful of gathering with the church who are probably the most ripe for receiving the grace of God. I want you to see that. Like, whenever people say things like, oh, I probably shouldn't come to church, man. <laughs> if I come, I'll probably get by lightning. You ever heard that before? Maybe some of you have said that before. If you hear somebody say that, your first thought should be, this person realizes they're a sinner in need of salvation. This person has a glimpse of Sinai. And then the second thing you need to realize then is this person has no idea about who Jesus is or what he's done for them. Okay? So here's my challenge. You guys ready? In that moment, spirit-filled, grace-bought, Jesus-loving, Zion-dwelling Christian, here's my challenge. Don't just try to get them to come to church. Introduce them to Jesus. Share your life in Christ with them. There, then. Yes, invite them to church. Yes, invite them to community group. But don't dismiss the reality that the Spirit of God is in you and wants to speak these eternal truths of grace into that petrified soul right then and there. Yeah, I'm not talking about affirming them in their sin. I'm talking about saying, yeah, that sin's bad, but there's a way. Go for it. If you screw it up, then invite them to church and we'll help you out. <laughs> I'm kidding, but I'm not, right? Like, they, look, and, and they may scoff and they may mock and, and, and as they try to justify a lifestyle of sin and retreat, retreat to what they know, their own carnal comforts, they may shut their ears to the voice of the Lord and suppress the truth, right? That's what sinful people do in the presence of a holy God. That's what they do. But we don't. Don't let that shrink, make you shrink back from the testimony that God's placed on your life Right? Most people, even those who say they believe it, don't even really know what Christianity is even about. They're still at the foot of Sinai, and they need to hear about Zion. 
They don't just need to hear it from me. They need to hear it from you. And if you've gathered here with us together and, and, and any amount of time, then you know you've heard me declare. You know what the gospel is. I say it every week. God became a man. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you deserved to die. And he conquered death in the grave. And he paved the way to eternal life that starts now with God the Father through the indwelling Holy Spirit as sons and daughters of the Most High King. Now, not just one day when we die. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It was a fast nutshell. Now you've gotten it twice. You are commissioned. Go and tell and make disciples who make disciples and embrace them into community and commission them to do likewise. Right? Like, I get why unbelievers shrink back. I do. They should be afraid of God. Wrath and judgment are real. That's why they need the good news of the gospel. But what about the Christian? What about the Christian who functionally lives their lives at the foot of Mount Sinai? What about those church people who can't seem to shake that deep shame that seems to characterize their life? That stuff that makes them hypercritical of themselves and other people. The people that are quick to condemn and quick to feel condemnation. Right? Maybe, maybe you love to talk about God, but you never really seem to desire to draw near to God. If any of that sounds familiar or, or a struggle that you have, then I want to invite you to draw near this morning. It may not be comfortable. But it's so good. Don't refuse the one who's speaking. Rest in him this morning. I want to invite you to fix your eyes upon the heart of the one who loves you simply because you're his. Not because of anything you've done or haven't done or because of anything you might be able to do or fail at doing, but simply because you're his. You're his beloved. You're his child. He delights in you. He's drawn near to you. Would you draw near to him or shrink back? See that you don't refuse him this morning. After all, he is a consuming fire. But I pray that it would be a consuming fire of joy and celebration and intimacy. This is Zion. We are church people. Let's pray.